Welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. It's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Fiona Martin all the way from Australia. Fiona is an executive with extensive global community and source of performance experience across the industry life cycle in extractives. She covers strategic matters, including benefits realization, social investment, community, stakeholder engagement, social risk, and assurance. She's particularly interested in matters of cultural heritage, native title, human rights, local content, and responsible sourcing. She has worked for clients in Papua New Guinea, the Solomon Islands, Chile, Australia, and development institutions. Fiona, welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. I look forward to our conversation this morning. Thanks, Sheila. I'm really looking forward to our conversation too. It's a pleasure to be here. That's fantastic. So I wonder whether you can just help us define this concept of the social environment. Yeah, thanks, Sheila. Um, When we look at the social environment, each project, um, extractives project, in fact, any project in any industry, the social environment will be unique to that particular project. So it can include the communities in close proximity and that also intersect with like the main infrastructure corridors, et cetera. It can include the physical surrounds and the link to the social and cultural setting of those communities. And it's the interaction of those communities and people with the main industries, the workforce structure, um, also um, social and economic processes, um, the health services, um, all the community kind of facilities, our power relations, relations which can bring in cultural consideration, um, race relations, cultural practices, the arts, um, the religious institutions and practices of a location, and the beliefs about place and community. So it sounds like a really big kind of list of things but but essentially if you think of your community and all of the uniqueness and the cultural diversity in that community and then you situate that community next to or around an an extractives project that's really what the social environment is the households the kin networks neighborhoods uh, possibly towns or cities or villages and the regions around that and it's very dynamic and changing over time. Hmm. So a couple of follow-up questions there. You you referenced the word uniqueness. Uh, can, can you uh, tell us what, what, what might be aspects of what makes a particular environment socially unique? Yes, I certainly will. So, um, and, and I'll, I'll draw on a few examples. And, and I know, Sheila, that um, in your past role too as the ex-CEO with De Beers and, and also throughout Africa, you would have seen really unique communities um, within a, an African context across a whole host of countries, including Botswana. So uniqueness in some communities can be things like, for example, in some African communities, not all, but the the level of kind of poverty in those communities, the role and importance of the mining sector in terms of jobs and and opportunities for that specific community, the the ability really around jobs that it's not just a job for one person. Often it can be seen as a family wage where one job in that particular context can actually support 
a whole family or a community even of say 25 or 30 plus people. So the uniqueness there is around in some locations where there's high levels of disadvantage, it can, and poverty, it can also be linked to the benefits of, of the mining and jobs, which creates that uniqueness. Those communities can also um, be subsistence economies and rely on agriculture and other industries as well. You've then got unique um, communities in terms of areas with Indigenous peoples and, and people who, First Nations peoples, who, who actually live and, and, um, and, and very much their, their culture and their traditional ways is, is how they live in, in their communities. And you see that in, in communities across um, developing economies and also developed economies. You've then got areas, if you shift through to Australia, as well as um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities who, who can live very traditional, um, it, it, you know, kind of... Um, kind of practices. You've then got um, communities around mining where there's many mining operations. Um, for example, I worked for one company and we had seven mining operations in close proximity to five communities. So the uniqueness there was around the number of communities and the sheer impact of, of the project and the intersection. And then when I was in the Solomon Islands as well, I really got to experience different cultures and, and clans and and from different perspectives. And, and it was very, it was not uncommon for us to actually be engaging with communities where communities might actually speak three or four different languages, their mother tongue, um, you know, one or two other languages, um, pidgin, and then also English. So the uniqueness there was about the way they lived within their culture and community. So each community is different. Hmm. So uh, is it correct then to uh, assume that the social environment is not necessarily separated from the physical? No, look, they're, they're intertwined, they're symbiotic, symbiotic they're um, interdependent and totally related on each other. For example, um, the physical environment, when, when you look at that is, is very much, and, and I'm talking about for a mining or extractives project, includes the actual physical resource and the location, the soil, the landforms, the landscapes, the water resources and water courses around that, the natural environment, such as the vegetation, um, and then all of that and how it intersects and um, relates to the species within the physical environment and the ecosystems and the biodiversity of the area, et cetera. Um, so it, it's all interrelated and interdependent and often not appreciating that connection is where conflicts can often seed from. Mm. So let us look at this in the context of both the notion of ESG and ext extracted project. What are the most important aspects of the social environment that a project developers and governments ought to be alert to? Yeah, well, I suppose what I might do is I'll position that within the current energy transition, which will really require more minerals such as copper, lithium, graphite, cobalt and nickel, um, and, and in the race to, to really uh, decarbonise and, and to move to a more renewable um, energy kind of model. And in these environments, often what we're finding is there's a really close connection of some of these um, partic particular minerals 
and metals to Indigenous peoples' lands. And I read this report um, recently where it found that 69% of energy transition projects are on or near land that qualified as Indigenous peoples. So when you look at ESG and it comes back to that uniqueness of the community, it's really important to understand um, Indigenous peoples and the relationships with communities and this concept of free prior and informed consent because what we're finding is that projects and, and you're seeing this once again throughout, throughout lots of locations but particularly um, you're seeing it in areas throughout South America and, and Latin America and areas like Northeast Argentina and Bolivia and Chile also um, in lithium where this is becoming a real issue and resources and there's a high degree of contestability. So as well as Indigenous peoples it's, it's human rights which also connects back to free prior and informed consent. That understanding of supply chains, modern slavery and where products are coming from both in terms of upstream and downstream processing as well. Um, social activism and reputation and trust comes in under social and, and building trust is, is absolutely critical. Uh, fair work conditions and equality and diversity and uh, labour policies around that. And then situated around the E and the S and the G is this whole concept of geopolitical risks that we're seeing playing out. And, and we're seeing a much more um, focus given to benefits around projects, which necessitates new models of engagement and, and new models of development and um, equity sharing or participation or involving communities earlier in engagement about what projects can mean for them at earlier phases of the feasibility study, rather than bringing them in closer to the actual project approvals phase. Hmm. So you, you've mentioned a couple of uh, important policy uh, and strategic considerations by both governments and uh, mining uh, oil and gas companies in dealing with the social environment, namely, you know, sharing of economic benefits, human rights, land right access, etc. So if we take the ESG lens uh, and look at the way that this issues should be addressed. What is it that makes the uh, ESG lens approach these issues differently from previous uh, you know, undertakings? Yeah, well, what I'm finding is, and, and there's, there's two aspects to that. If you take an ESG lens and you're looking at environment, social and governance separately, you will get some improvements, but it's really looking at them all in an interrelated way where you'll, you'll get the real kind of improvements in practice and how things will work. And I'll, I'll give you a practical example of that to, to demonstrate. So about six years ago, I finished my, my PhD and I looked at jobs decision-making for large-scale projects and, and what fuller consideration of the social context or the social environment actually means and, and how all of the factors such as the business case, um, the actual communities, um, project finance, the regular, regulatory environment, et cetera, intersect to inform jobs decision-making. And what I found at the time is that the workforce strategy and profile is a materially significant aspect. It can be up to 20 to 40% of a project cost. So that's kind of the first consideration. Then the government regulatory environment and financier expectations came in. 
And looking at that, it was then um, project financiers were really looking at a good return on investment um, and consideration of local jobs to the extent that they had to meet regulatory environments and also prescriptive ESG requirements. But if you look at things like the IFC performance standards and the equator principles and that, the focus is predominantly on risk and addressing risks and not so much on looking in detail at benefits. But what I've found since I um, finished my PhD, and particularly in 2021, 22 and onwards, is there's now much more focus on the benefits and the issues of human rights and everything around that. And that by virtue is also catalyzing a broader focus on E, S and G collectively. We do a lot of due diligence and within that due diligence, we're at, we work with um, top tier companies and we act, we're actually combining the environment, the social and the governance considerations with consideration around the project resource, business readiness, issues around the design of the tailings dam, all of these aspects to look at them more strategically, which means often we will apply a higher um, risk rating to these projects because we're looking at these factors jointly or severally, but then also jointly. Whereas a traditional ESG assessment will often have rankings and indicators for the environment aspects, for the social, for the governance, but then the actual combination of that linking to the whole project risk profile is actually something that hasn't typically been done well. So the change we're seeing is that much more kind of joined up approach to ESG assessments. And that's where the value really lies. That's interesting. So if I understand you, what you're saying is that ESG helps us disaggregate the component parts because then we can zoom in on particular issues. But at the same time, when we then look at how to mitigate uh, any risk, the focus is on uh, one, looking at them as a collective rather than individual bits, but also rather than focusing on risk, the focus is on ensuring positive outcomes. W would that be correct? Well, you focus on risk most definitely. So that's critical. So if you think of a mining development project and the physical environment of where it's situated, et cetera, and you think that that industry might be a high water user. So you look at the environment and you look at water scarcity, you look at the social and the community side and in the design around water insecurity and water security and, and you know, and the impact on the community. So that definitely is a risk. You then look at the design aspects about how how you can actually influence the design in the earlier feasibility study phases to minimise that impact and to actually um, improve water security for that community as a result of that project. But in and around that, you also then look at the benefits and how the community can benefit fr from that broadly through jobs, social procurement, um, models of development, but also in terms of access to water, you know, following that example through. And then what governance and transparency might mean around that in the, in the policies and the, and the water licensing arrangements that you have in place. So that's just following that through. But what we're seeing is um, there's, there's kind of a real wave at the moment, and it's really came through in 2022, where companies are putting more emphasis on social value. And we're actually seeing this in the infrastructure sector as well, and particularly like in places like the UK, where it's actually in legislation now. 
And with social value, you're looking at a whole host of metrics and indicators, ESG considerations, um, corporate social responsibility, um, social value around shared value, etc. And what we're finding is we're working with clients now to give much fuller consideration to this basket of metrics and options right from the earliest feasibility study design phase. So that might mean when you're looking at the design of a mine, the port, the infrastructure, the, the tailings facility and all of that, that you're engaging a lot earlier with communities and you're actually looking at those trade-offs and benefits and the risks and the opportunities and that that's informing the design of the project. Because the issue is, if you start to um, engage in the social at that later stages towards project approvals, you can't actually really influence the project design because it's in those earlier phases where you can influence how things come through to the project approvals phase. So really what you're saying is um, this assessment of potential uh, risk and benefits on the social environment, but must really start as early as possible uh, in the uh, project stage, because if you do so post uh, or too close to uh, actual commissioning, that is too late uh, to ensure that this social and ESG lens influences project design and how you're going to execute it. Now, let me ask you, and, and perhaps, at the risk of sounding cynical, is this notion of social environment merely corporate social responsibility by another name? Oh, look, I, I think you could see some companies that, that that could be the case, but we're seeing a wholesale shift in the consideration of these things. And, and an ESG lens is, is really bringing in, as I said, everything around the environment, social and governance risk, but also bringing in corporate social responsibility. So that's really your upfront kind of preemptive, proactive consideration of material social uh, risks and issues. But then bringing in this concept of shared value, like the development and progression of initiatives that really value the pro that really add value to the project, but also to the community. And companies have been a bit nervous in this area. Um, an example would be beneficiation. And some countries have led or jurisdictions have been legislating that um, projects must beneficiate. And projects would argue, well, if it was commercially feasible to do so we would do so already. However, given this current energy transition, we're seeing a whole flip in how companies are considering this because they're wanting to secure their supply ch chain and often to get that kind of upstream kind of resource. So uh, lithium batteries would be a clear, uh, batteries would be a clear example and making sure that you can secure lithium and then that goes through to the mining whole life cycle and then through to the manufacturing as well. So we're really seeing that focus on, on that coming through. And then the social license about being a good corporate citizen. So no, I don't think CSR is, Oh, sorry, ESG is CSR by a different name. I think it's in the mix with everything else. And we're, and we're seeing companies overall be more sophisticated in this respect, um, particularly the tier one companies. We're finding that um, 
smaller explorations who then go through to start the development of a mine. And then once the resources prove they can really explode in value, they're the companies that are, are making commitments but don't necessarily know what it means. So they might commit to ESG, et cetera, but when you actually explore it and unpack it, there's genuine intent, but they need kind of support and mentoring through what that actually means for them and their project and the intersection with the social environment. So um, you mentioned that, um, you know, the, the um, concern for the social environment and response is not peculiar to the extractives that we find the same approach in other industries. So I must ask you, uh, is the need to address impacts of industry on the social environment as relates to extractive different from other industries? Or do we find the approach is fundamentally uh, founded in the same uh, concepts, but also methodologies? Yeah, I think that most industries now will have some type of governance frameworks or standards. Like for example, with mining and other things, we have the IFC performance standards, the equator principles. There's then others, you know, there's global reporting initiative and all these other kind of standards and requirements in place. And then countries will have their own jurisdictions and legislative frameworks as well. But what we're finding is there's much more of a conversation around this and a focus. But in mining in particular, it's hard to ignore your neighbours who are outside your fence or sometimes in your fence, for example, you know, in terms of that intersection between the community and the mine. Now, agriculture is an industry that's, um, there's a lot of focus on ESG as well. And part of this also boils down to, it's an industry that has a $3 trillion challenge looming that, because that's the estimated cost to feed everyone on the planet now. And so that brings in emissions like methane and the focus on you know, reducing emissions and, and how does agriculture do that? The use of pesticides, fertilizers and fresh water. So the agriculture industry is a huge user of, of water and water licensing. And, and that really intersects with the physical environment and the biodiversity of an area, et cetera. So that, that is a real, real focus as well and how to do that. And the whole issue of food security, if, vast tracts of land are being taken to use for commercial, large-scale commercial agriculture use. And then you have communities who um, also struggle with food security. You've also seen that um, the growth in global demand for food in, in linked to agriculture is, is really, and the growth in populations is really increasing global greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and in fact, and how does and this is a real focus that they're looking at too. And but at the same time, on the flip side, there's then new technologies and, and um, existing technologies that farmers are using to increase productivity and to reduce the environmental kind of um, impact. When you look at manufacturing sector as well, um, 
there's there's real um, kind of focus in in those areas, um, particularly around human rights in supply chains in in factory factories, and you see it all the time when you see about clothing factories and um, etc. And reducing their carbon emissions, and then the construction industry, like the construction industry in Asia Pacific alone, is projected to be 2.5 trillion US to 2030, and so the whole focus is on sourcing materials responsibly, uh, reducing emissions and the carbon footprint, building community trust, delivering a social value dividend, social procurement. Um, so all of these are similar. So what you're saying is um, in industries like construction, infrastructure, manufacturing, um, agriculture and mining, those same issues, emissions reduction, the human rights focus, sourcing materials responsibly, trust, you're minimising your footprint um, and delivering social value are coming up as themes across all industries. So here's my uh, final question to you. Uh, when you look into the future then, Fiona, how is this social environment uh, and the risk dynamics uh, likely to change in part because of the new ESG focused approach to both benefits and social risk? Well, at the moment, people are talking about the importance of social having a seat at the table. Social's been the poor cousin to environment and to governance. Even though it's in the middle, it's just been kind of ESG, but it hasn't actually really unpacked what social means. So in the future, having that real understanding of and de definition of what social is, having um, social practitioners of a, as a community of practice, it's kind of accredited so that like an, an engineering accreditation or an environmental accreditation that you actually know that it's got standing behind it. Having the social team with the skills and expertise to actually influence across the life cycle and supply chain chain and who have a really good understanding of the, the financial or the economic side of the model. They don't have to have the detailed economic understanding, but at least how so, a detailed understanding of how the social impacts or influences the business case would be really good. And ensuring that social has a seat at the table at every stage of that life cycle. Um, I've found that traditionally the project governance structure for some of these large scale projects, they, they can have best endeavours around how social is included within policies and ESG. But if you really unpack the approach, you'd find that the scope for these large scale projects can be fractured. So by that, I mean that um, an engineering design firm can be given the design scope. They may then bring in a separate um, consultant to do some social work on the side. Um, or the company may look at that, but that's only as good as how the company or the other individual consulted are embedded in those key project design thinking kind of considerations from that earlier phase. So in the future, it'd just be that when you look at a project, it's just got S in there, just like you'd have the engineers in there, just like you have the environment team, the health and safety team, et cetera. It's just embedded. And that's just the way we do business. Fantastic. Well, it was very nice having you on the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast, Fiona. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed our conversation. 
thanks very much, Sheila. It was a pleasure to talk with you. And, and I know that you yourself from, from your career and experience have lots of examples and insights on this important topic too.